0: When I turned 8 years old, I had a birthday party in my house. All the kids from my class came. And by that I mean all the boys from the class came. (laughs) Because I didn't invite any of the girls, because they had cooties and whatever. So, So the boys were invited. And from what I can remember, it was a fun time. However, there was one exception to that fun, and it came in the form of gift that a classmate gave to me. I really struggled to show any excitement as I unwrapped it and held in my eight-year-old hands a math flashcard game. (laughs) That's right, math flashcards for an eight-year-old boy's birthday. Safe to say that that was a swing and a miss by my friend Scott, and I started to think to myself, wow, Scott really must not like me. (laughs) Now, of course, years later, I realized it was probably his mom who picked out this particular gift, but I didn't know that at the time. And as a kid, you think to yourself when you look at that, this isn't a fun gift. You think to yourself, look, Scott, I'm not looking for personal growth here, okay? Birthdays are about fun, not about learning. Because that's what we think about celebrations, especially as kids. You know, as we approach this Christmas, a time certainly of celebration, we're going to celebrate that our Savior was born among us. My prayer is that we will also see that there is so much for us to learn. The story of the Lord's birth should challenge us, and it should change us, believers. We need to realize that Christmas isn't just a time of celebration, it should also be a time of spiritual growth in our lives. See, what I mean is that we can can celebrate and rejoice in the birth of Christ, praise is good, but we should also grow in our faith and our relationship with Jesus. So if you would join with me, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2 this morning for a Christmas sermon of sorts, Philippians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, you can Use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you, and you can turn to page 951. Page 951. Philippians 2, my prayer is that we will see why we should be changed by the Christmas story. That is, why we should be changed by the birth of Christ. So part of what we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider that incredible day 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and came to dwell among us, his creation. We've heard the story on that quiet night in Bethlehem. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph. He was laid in a manger. We've heard how the angels announced this news to the shepherds who visited the long way to Messiah with rejoicing, how Mary treasured these things. These are incredible truths. This is a birth that would change the course of world history. Millions upon millions of lives have been changed by all eternity as a result. There is a lot to praise God for all of this. But as I've mentioned, there's more than just praise in the Nativity story. Now there's an application for our lives. There's the pursuit of God's glory. So what can we learn from Christ's birth? Let's see what Paul says in Philippians 2. We're going to begin by first looking at who Paul is addressing. So let's look together. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1, he writes this. He says, Therefore... If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Let's pause here for just a minute. To who's Paul talking to? Paul's talking to Christians. And keep in mind... It's very important that as Christians, we have already been changed by the birth of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is Jesus came to this earth. He was born and lived a perfect life so that he could die on the cross for our sins. All the things that we have done. And then he powerfully rose from the dead. And as a result of these things, this free and full salvation is offered to everyone who comes to Jesus in faith. The first way that Christ's birth changed us is that it led to this great salvation that we now enjoy, believers. We should be the most grateful people that Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. We should rejoice in the birth of Christ because it was a vital part of the salvation story. And we're going to see that there's more change that this should bring about. In this section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see what the church, that is those who have been saved and changed by Jesus Christ, what, what the church should look like. Everyone who has given their life to Jesus has been united together with him, comforted by his love. As Christians, we are each partakers of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Therefore, Paul says, we should live in unity with each other. After all, the church is made up of children of God. We're in the same family. It's made up of those following the same Savior and dwelt by the same Spirit of God, headed for an eternity together in the presence of Christ. I don't know about you, but it makes sense that we would learn to get along together now. But as such, we're supposed to live in the same mind and the same spirit, Paul says. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have individual thoughts or anything like that. It means that we're united in our faith, and we're supposed to focus together on the things of Jesus Christ. When that is true, that's when a church is characterized by love and unity. But sadly, as many of us know, churches aren't Always united, are they? I read a story recently about a church that was growing leaps and bounds. Its members were sharing the gospel in the community. They were inviting others to the church. People were getting saved on a regular basis. It was a place of unity. It was a place of strength. And the church grew, both spiritually and numerically. Now, as they outgrew their worship center, they decided they needed to expand. They had to build a new worship center. Oh, part of their project was that they were going to replace their church pews with chairs. And that's when the arguing started. Now People got upset about that. Personal opinions led to sides being chosen. As a result, everyone's focus became this petty argument that they were having with one another. And when they were focused on that, they stopped sharing the gospel with others. Well, they stopped inviting people to church. As you can imagine, soon the church began... To suffer, because the unity in that church dissolved. But how do things like this happen? I mean, how does unity get destroyed in churches? How can we go from from those changed forever by Christ, united together in this life, to those being divided with one another? Look what Paul says next, verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Hmm. So what destroys unity? Selfishness. Selfish ambition. vain conceit. When we start to focus on ourselves, that's where the unity starts to go downhill. That's what happened in that church that I just mentioned. They took their focus off of Christ. They looked to their own wants their own desires, soon there was all this friction. The solution, Paul says, is that we need to humble ourselves. Now what is what is humility? I think sometimes we think that humility is to beat ourselves up, to be unkind to ourselves. And then we think that we're finally reaching humility. Now I think somebody somebody put it well. Someone once said this. They said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. All right, That's humility. That's a good, simple definition for it. The question is, because of that, what are we supposed to do? Now, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, describes the proud person this way. He says, the proud man's always looking down on things and down on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You see, the solution to our pride, our selfishness, our vain ambition, is to take our eyes off of ourselves, to look upwards towards heaven, and focus on Jesus Christ. That's what the church I mentioned earlier needed to do. That's what every believer needs to do. You see, the humble Christian is a believer who is not focused on his or her own vain ambitions and goals, because that believer's focus is first and foremost on Jesus Christ. And when we care to focus on Christ... Well, soon we'll start to focus on the things that Christ cares about, including our fellow believers. The humble Christian has an easy time loving the family of God because that believer doesn't let petty differences get in the way. They don't take simple hurts to heart and allow that to divide them. Instead, they seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's be honest with ourselves. Humility is a whole lot easier to talk about than to live out, right? Or maybe that's just me. That's because we're easily distracted by our own desires. It's a natural instinct to look out for ourselves. But if humility is supposed to characterize the church if it's necessary for unity, then this is something that we should pursue. Now, praise the Lord, we have been given the greatest example of humility. And this, this is where the Christmas story comes in for us. This is where the birth of Christ must not simply be a call to praise, but a call for us to be changed. A call for us to be more humble, to be more like Christ, to be more like the body of Christ should look like. Look what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 5. He said, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Believer, if you want to know what humility looks like, look at Jesus Christ. There are a lot of ways that Jesus demonstrated humility. Consider consider first what it was that Jesus left behind when he came to this earth. There's a pastor who went snorkeling, and after he went snorkeling and, and he did all this stuff, he, he wrote this, and it bears repeating. He said, that when he went snorkeling, he said, I saw countless fish of every shape, size, and color. And just when I thought I'd seen the most beautiful fish, along came another even more striking. He said, etched in my memory is a certain sound, the sound of a gasp going through my rubber snorkel as my eyes were open to that breathtaking underwater world. He said, I imagine that our first glimpse of heaven will cause us to similarly gasp in amazement and delight. He wrote, that first gasp will likely be followed by many more as we continually encounter new sights in that endlessly wonderful place. Just imagine that for a moment. Heaven, heaven is a far cry from our world, isn't it? I mean, we know that even though we've never seen it. In fact, what that pastor wrote reminds me of what Dr. Rizel pointed out when he was here recently in our revival series. Hopefully you were able to attend that when he was here with us. And during that time, Dr. Rizel pointed out that we get at times in life what he referred to as glimpses of glory. He said it's those times when we see such beauty in this life that we can only imagine it as a glimpse of the glory waiting for us in eternity. I remember going on a cruise once and I was sitting out on a balcony looking out at this endless ocean. And those waters, they were the deepest blue I had ever seen. I remember thinking to myself, you can't manufacture a blue that deep and that rich. It was it was breathtaking. It was a glimpse of glory. But all these glimpses, they're just a shadow. Heaven is the reality. This is a broken world. Heaven is complete. This is a place marred by sin. Heaven is defined by perfection. And that, that's what Jesus left behind when he came to this earth. He left a place wonderful beyond our imagination. He left a place of perfection to come to a place of sin and death. He left the place where he was worshipped to go to a place where he would be despised and spat on. Out of a love for this lost world and this room full of us sinners, Jesus left the wonder of heaven and his throne. He veiled his glory and he took the form of a man, the very creatures he himself created. Not only that, he, he didn't just come as a man, he came as the lowest form. He came as a servant. And although all things belong to him, including the cattle on a thousand hills, He was born and lived in meager circumstances. As Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 8, he said, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And not only did Jesus go from heavenly throne to lowly manger, from king to servant, but he did all of this so that he could willingly die. The creator of life was killed by those that he gave life to. They put him to death with what is considered to be one of the most excruciating and humiliating forms of capital punishment. That's death on a cross. You see, Jesus is our greatest example of humility because he has every right to be worshipped and adored. He has every right to be honored and feared, to live in glory and majesty. But he laid all of that aside and took on a human body. He remained fully God but took on humanity that he might be able to die for us, identify with us, and rescue us. You see, he did all of that for us. He laid aside what was rightfully his for us. He demonstrated humility and obedience to the Father's will by dying on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 puts it beautifully. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus willingly humbled himself, not only by coming to earth from heaven, not only by setting aside his glory, but by obediently dying for me and you. And now, believers, we are called to follow his example. What would it look like if we humbly obeyed and focused on God's will and commands day by day? Well, if that was the case, then we wouldn't be filled with selfish ambition that Paul warns against. We'd love each other. We'd be united. We'd be of the same mind and the same spirit together. And that's what we should be. Please understand, I I praise God for the unity that exists in this church, and there is great unity. And I do, I thank him often for it. I pray that he would allow it to remain. But understand that all of us could grow into deeper levels of humility in our lives. And we need to remember, every time we hear, and every time we read the true story of Christmas, what Jesus did when he came to this earth, every time that Christmas rolls around, we should celebrate the salvation that Jesus brought, the salvation that changed our lives but we should also be challenged by his humility that we might be changed to live humbler lives, believers. I mean, if our Savior left the glory of heaven for our good, then can't we look to our fellow believers for their good? If in his immense love, Jesus laid aside the privileges of his divinity, can't we lay aside our supposed privileges in order to love and look after one another as family in Christ? We should praise Jesus for the humility he demonstrated. And we should be changed by his example. You know, the truth is, even if Jesus had been born in the most immaculate palace on earth, surrounded by gold and diamonds and all sorts of things, that would still be a mud hut compared to his throne in heaven. Even if earthly choirs sang out when Mary gave birth, that would pale in comparison to the praise that Jesus receives in heaven, from that heavenly choir. But Jesus went far below these things and was born in tiny Bethlehem, in a manger, a quiet night. But rest assured, church, Jesus will be praised by all. So remember this too. Every time you read the story of his birth, remember what Paul says here in verse 9. He says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in the little town of Bethlehem, and that would have gone completely unnoticed had it not been for those angels breaking into the night and announcing the news to the shepherds. But remember that while that was, in many ways, a silent night, unrecognized by so many people, the day will come when everyone will recognize Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But in the meantime, church, we should be found singing his praises. Not only that, but rest assured that while many people resist him now, one day every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. His people will bow in reverence and rejoicing, And his enemies will bow in fear and trembling, but every knee will bow. So in the meantime, church, we should seek to bring people to the Savior who came from heaven to rescue them from sin and hell so that they could be changed forever by him the way that we have been, so that they could bow before him in rejoicing with us. Christians, the birth of Jesus Christ has already changed our lives because of the salvation that he secured, that we receive when we put our faith in him. But when we read the story of his birth, we should also be challenged to live lives of humility, modeled after our Lord and Savior. When we do this, we will find ourselves living in unity alongside one another. Again, I praise God for the great unity that exists in this church. But as we grow in humility, we'll find that we're going to grow into deeper and deeper levels of unity with one another as well. And then we'll find joy as we pursue Jesus and his will as a church. When we move in the same direction towards him, we'll see what it looks like as his Holy Spirit overwhelms this place. To become more humble, though, we have to realize we can't focus on Jesus only at Christmas or only at special times during the year. No, we need to focus on him every single day. Because the more we focus on him, the less we will focus on ourselves and the more unity we will find with our family in Christ. So let our goal be this, this Christmas, believers. Let's praise Jesus this Christmas. Yeah, let's praise him. And let's pray that Jesus changes us this Christmas. Let that be our goal. Let our prayer be that he would help us to become more and more humble in our lives, more and more like Jesus Christ, so that we would become more and more united together, more and more prepared to pursue him as a church each and every day. If you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, I just want you to understand something. I want you to understand that Jesus is pursuing you. In fact, Jesus has been chasing after you your whole life. Friend, please understand that the Bible is very clear. We've all sinned, all broken God's commands, done bad things. And the Bible tells us that the bad news is that our sin deserves punishment, and the just punishment is to be separated forever from God in a place called hell. Well, and part of that bad news is that we can't make up for sin. No amount of good works, going to church on Christmas or Easter or all the days in between. No amount of prayer, no amount of baptism. None of these things can save us. Pretty hopeless place that we're in. That's why we celebrate on Christmas. Because Jesus Christ came to this earth and did the thing that we can't do. He lived a perfect life. And because of his perfection, at the end of his life, when he died on that cross, he was taking our place, he was our substitute took all of the wrath, all the punishment that we deserved. He paid that penalty for us. After he died, he was buried, and three days later, powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he is exactly who he said he is. Now, he's no mere man. He's the Son of God, he's the Savior. He's the only one who can rescue us from sin and hell. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, if you have never made that decision, please know that you can make that decision before you leave here this morning. No matter what you've been through, no matter what's going on in your life right now, Jesus has been waiting your whole life to save you. The question is, will you give your life to him? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Friend, if that's true for you, if you know that Jesus isn't your savior, but you're ready for that to change, please understand that during this this final song we're going to sing, you can come and talk with me here at the front. We can talk about whatever questions you have. We can pray together. But maybe maybe you're ready right now to give your life to Christ. And if that's true, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. So friend, understand that you can go to Jesus Christ in prayer right now, wherever you're sitting. And by faith, you can pray something like this. You can say, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've done bad things. I've broken your commands. But Jesus, I know you came to this earth and died on the cross for me. And I believe you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose from the dead. And Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sins. I'm asking you to be my Savior. Jesus, today I'm asking you to take my life and do whatever you want with it, because I know you can do more with it than I can. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone who made that decision today, that they would share it with someone so we could rejoice with them. And I pray if there's anyone here who still hasn't made that decision, that they would think long and hard about these things. Father, thank you that 2,000 years ago, and your overwhelming, indescribable love for us, you sent Jesus Christ to this earth. Thank you for this incredible example that Jesus gave us of humility and obedience and love for others, and servant-hearted humility. As your people, help us now to be challenged by his example. Bring us into deeper levels of humility in our lives. Show us the ways that we are focusing on ourselves. Show us whatever selfish ambition and vain conceit exists in our lives. And as you reveal those things to us, Father, I pray that today we would be quick to repent of these things so that we could get right back to praising you and living in humility. Father, I can't thank you enough for the unity here at First Baptist Church of Oxford. I pray that you would allow it to be maintained. I pray that as we do grow individually into levels of humility, that we would see that deep unity. We would learn to love one another, bear one another's burdens, and that we would rejoice every time We get to be with each other. Father, I pray that through all this, you'd be glorified. Father, we love you. But you proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. We thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen.